Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySelfland.com. Last week, we looked at the power of a consecrated life. And uh, if you didn't get a chance to look at that yet, I know the guys put it up online uh, late, uh, simply because uh, Cody, our main video guy, was up at camp uh, doing a lot of this shoot here. Um, but uh, it's the basis for today. And so I want to finish the Samson story today. We're going to read a huge chunk of chapter 14, a little bit of 15, and then we're going to go and we're actually going to get right to the end of chapter 16. And uh, I want to look at the sign. When you, so last week, power of a consecrated life. Today I want to look at when you live an unconsecrated life, what does that become? And then secondly, in the last part of this message, I want to look at how God in his grace draws us towards and into a consecrated life. All right, so let's pray, and then we're just going to read tons of this story. All right, so Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your presence here today. I thank you for this church. We're so blessed to be a part of this family, and, uh, and, I, and I thank you for this summer and the amazing things you've been doing uh, out on the West Coast uh, there through Pastor Ray and stuff with the church renewal stuff, but through camp. Uh, this year again. So many testimonies we're hearing already have changed lives in the leaders, in the campers, everywhere. And so, Father, now as we tie up this Samson series, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst again, that you would build us up, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 14 and 15. And again, I'm, you can just sit back. I'm just going to read you a whole bunch of uh, passages here. But kind of what I'm doing as we're going through these passages, I want you just to get an overview Again, last week, power of a consecrated life. When you're consecrated, that's when the Spirit of God can move through you. And now I want to read you the story. What happens? What does your life turn into? Eventually, a life that is not consecrated to God becomes something. And I want to show you that in the Samson story. Samson is a great example of it. And so we'll start in, in Judges 14, verse 10, just where we left off last week, and then we're just going to fly right through the entire chapter. And so, of course, Samson is in Timnah now, and he's getting ready to get married to this Philistine woman whom he should not be marrying. And so in verse 10, we find this. As his father was making final arrangements for the marriage, Samson threw a party at Timnah, as was the custom for elite young men. And the Hebrew word there for party is the word mishteh, which, which it, it means like drinking party, drinking feast. And so again, we see that Samson is not keeping to his Nazarite vows. And so verse 11, when the bride's parents saw him, they selected 30 young men from the town to be his companions. And Samson said to them, let me tell you a riddle. If you solve my riddle during these seven, seven days of the celebration, I will give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. But if you can't solve it, then you must give me 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. All right, they agreed. Let's hear your riddle. So he said, Out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And of course, this has to do with the lion he's killed and eating the honey, right? As we looked at last, last week. Three days later, they were still trying to figure it out. And I don't know about you if you've ever been into riddles uh, in your family or anything, but I, I've occasionally heard riddles. I give up after like two minutes, okay? But three days later, I guess when you have a bet on it, there's a little more higher stakes. And so on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to explain the riddle for us, or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. So a little motivation there. These are not good companions to have at your wedding, all right? Did you invite us to this party just to make us poor? So Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, and oh, great, women, you know, you, you put on the, the waterworks, right? And uh, I've heard of women who have gotten out of speeding tickets with that, and that's just shameless, ladies. Don't, don't do that, okay? 
and said, you don't love me, you hate me. You have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even given the answer to my father and mother, he replied. Why should I tell you? So she cried whenever, by the way, that's not a great way to start a marriage either, but uh, <laughs> things not to say. There's so much we can get out of the Samson story of what he did wrong, but anyway. So she cried whenever she was with him and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. At last on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging, and I just love that that word is in there. Um, I thought about doing a whole message just on that passage right there. But anyway, then she explained the riddle to the young men. So before sunset of the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? And Samson replied, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle, and we won't, we'll just pass over that. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't say that, okay? Never say that. I actually talked to a couple just before this, this message. They were in Las Vegas, and they went to a show, Samson and Delilah. Hey, it's the Bible, right? And they left after five minutes. But anyway, um, some things in the Bible were not meant to be put on stage or on a movie. But anyway, verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. Okay, now this is just a sordid story. It's just gross. It is bizarre. It's terrible. We've got murder. We've got, you know, riddles, drinking parties. We've got self-pity at the end. He just, you know, he just, he runs off uh, back to his parents. And the whole thing is gross. And I want to look at that in just a few minutes. But first, there's this one little rabbit trail we have to look at. And that is, I want them to underline it up there, if you could, Egan. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And, and right there, that, first of all, raises lots of questions. Okay, first of all, why would the Spirit of the Lord come on a guy in the midst of such a debauched, gross life? And then what does the Spirit of the Lord empower him to do to run off and kill 30 men and take their belongings? It really, for a lot of people, you read a story like this and it's like, what is going on here? First of all, is the Spirit of the Lord uh, condoning Samson's behavior here? Because it certainly, it just seems like, why would the Spirit of the Lord come on someone who's in the midst of this? And why would the Spirit of the Lord empower someone to do then what uh, Samson did. So did, does this mean that the Spirit of God condoned Samson's sin, and does it mean that the Spirit of God caused Samson to sin? And of course, the answer right off the bat is no. God is holy, just, true, kind, pure, wonderful. Everything, that is what God is. Of course, now in his dealings with man, he, uh, he is dealing with impure people, and sometimes it looks like he's getting dirty as a result, but he is holy, pure, and good. And so uh, there's a couple things you need to know. First of all, the Spirit of the Lord coming on Samson here. He is, God is not condoning Samson's behavior, and God is not causing Samson to sin. But you need to look at this from two perspectives. First perspective is you have to look at this from the perspective of the sovereignty of God. And the, old, and the Bible, not just the Old Testament, the New Testament as well, the Bible has a very uh, uh, you know, firm you know, thorough view of the sovereignty of God that ultimately all things, God is in control of all things. And so when you look at this thing from the sovereignty of God, what you have to understand is here God has made Samson as a particular tool. Samson is supposed to be his tool. Remember, right from birth, 
you are going to begin the deliverance of the people of Israel um, and release them from the, uh, begin to release them from the oppression of the Philistines. So God made Samson for a very specific purpose, and that was to kill Philistines in order to help uh, God's people, the Israelites, all right? Now, here's the thing. So now Samson should have done that in a righteous way, okay? God didn't intend for Samson to live this debauched life. And so when God made Samson to be a tool, he made him, like just like a tool maker makes tools in the toolbox for certain things, God made Samson to be a certain thing to help his people, the Israelites, and to kill Philistines. And if Samson would have walked with the Lord and walked closely with him and loved him, you know, who knows how it would have looked, but no doubt Samson would become a leader. You know, he could have organized an army of Israelites. He could have led them into battle, and he could have done great exploits in the field of battle and, and destroyed the Philistines in an honorable way, okay? But when Samson chose not to walk closely with God and not to walk in integrity, we have to look at this from the, from the perspective of the sovereignty of God. Will God's will be thwarted by Samson? God said, I, I'm going to begin a deliverance of the Israelites. And remember, we looked at that too earlier in the series, that because of the, the state the Israelites were in, God was not going to fully deliver them during the lifetime of Samson. But he said, I am going to begin to deliver the Israelites through Samson. When Samson decides not to follow God, though, it's not like the sovereignty of God is going to be thwarted. God's not, God's not in heaven when Samson's living a debauched life. God's not in heaven wringing his hands going, oh no, all my plans are ruined. He's not going, oh, angels, what are we going to do? I, I promised that I would begin a deliverance through Samson and I would use him and it's not working out and my plans are being ruined. God's plans don't get ruined. And so in the sovereignty of God, he even bends Samson's debauchery to his will. So Samson should have walked with God in purity and integrity, and if he had, God would have won mighty victories through him that way. But when Samson decided, I'm going to walk in debauchery, and I'm not going to walk in, in consecration, as we looked at last week, I'm not going to walk separate, devoted to the Lord. He says, I'm going to go and live a debauched life. Then God is so powerful, so sovereign, that he even takes Samson's debauched choices, and he says, I'll bend those to my will, and I'm going to, and I'm going to weave those things into a hammer with which to pummel the, the, the Philistines. So God did not cause Samson to lust. God did not cause Samson to go into murderous rages. But when Samson had those things, God said, I'll now use those things to hit the Philistines. Does that make sense? And so that's one thing we need to keep in mind. But there's a second thing we need to keep in mind as well, and that is the mercy and patience of God that he puts his spirit on imperfect people. Aren't you glad he puts his spirit on imperfect people? Like we read a story like this and our, and our, and our gut reaction is to get mad. Why would you put your spirit on someone like that? But we have to turn that question on to ourselves and say, if we're expecting God to only put his spirit on the perfect people, none of us, none of us is ever going to have the spirit of God put on us. Does that make sense? So part of this is the mercy and patience of God. Part of this is something we need to celebrate that you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have it all together. If God could put his spirit on someone like Samson, this should cause everybody here in this room this morning to have boldness as we go back to prayer this week, that you can have boldness when you go and say, Holy Spirit, I need you. I need to be filled by you. I need to be led by you. If you can, if you can come on a person like Samson, he can come on anyone here this morning. That is to me something to celebrate. That is something to give us hope. That is something that should make us bold in our prayers. Amen? Of course, it's also, on the other hand, something to be cautious of. 
It also means that not only can we go to the Lord boldly and say, we need your spirit, and you can even tell him that. You can open up the book, uh, the Bible to the book of Judges and say, you fill this guy. Fill me. Okay, you can do that. But there's also something to be cautious of here, and that is when you're following others. You know, just because a person is an incredible charismatic speaker, or just because they're an amazing musician, or just because they're an amazing leader, or they write incredibly, or whatever, just because they, they have this powerful anointing, and they operate maybe in the prophetic, and amazing things happen, and people just go, oh, we got to follow this guy. This is, the, you know, God, the Spirit of God is all over this person. Just because someone operates in a powerful anointing like that doesn't mean they're actually godly, doesn't mean they're actually going to lead you to God. Samson had a powerful anointing here. The Spirit of the Lord came on him and he operated out of that, but this is not a man anybody should be following. Yeah, I remember uh, uh, a number of years ago, a wonderful worship ministry. I love their music, continue to love their music, but they, uh, they put out a song and it was all about God's character, about you know, God being a healing God and all this sort of stuff. And the guy that, that wrote the song uh, said he had cancer and it was a powerful song. I've listened to it many times. The words are powerful. The music is powerful. Like I've had, you know, you listen to that song, many of you have listened to it, and it just, it ministers. It's an incredible song. And a couple years later, after this song came out, it turns out this guy, and he would go up on stage, and he would play this song in front of live audiences. He'd have tubes coming out of his nose because he had cancer, and it just made the song so much more powerful because here's a guy with terminal cancer, and he's singing this song about God as our healer. And then it came out, he had made the whole thing up. It was all a lie, partially started to cover up a, a terrible porn addiction that he had. And you go, well, how could a, how could a person in sin who's lying and doing stuff, how could they write such powerful words? How could they write such powerful music? And that's just it. God in his mercy will still empower us to do stuff. And, and so just because you're a person, and you know, and how many times in the news, it's been so sad the last few years, guys who are preaching messages that millions are listening to, powerful messages, and people are listening to their podcasts, and everybody's following them, and then adultery, I can think of a whole bunch in my head right now, just from the last couple of years, you know, these big-time pastors and preachers, or other stupid things in, in immorality, and they come crashing down, and people say, well, how, you know, I thought God was in that. You know what? Just because someone operates in a powerful anointing, just like Samson here, doesn't mean they're godly. Really what it comes down to is you have to look at their private life and you have to say, what we looked at last week, is there love and holiness there? It's not the, it's not the power of the giftedness. It's not how wonderful they are to listen to. It's not how charismatic they are. It's look at the personal life and see, is there an actual devotion to the Lord in this person's life? Is there actually love? How do they treat their wife? How do they treat their kids? How do they treat their neighbors? How do they, how do they interact? Do they actually pursue the Lord or are they just living a worldly life? You have to be up close. And this is why, by the way, I'm just not a big fan of, of following ministries and leaders who are hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away. You know what? The body of Christ was meant to be lived as a body, hence the body of Christ. It's meant to be lived on local, in, a, in a local church. That's where it was meant to be lived out, where we know each other. I mean, you guys, I, you know, my wife and I often talk about it. It doesn't matter. One time I was buying a tie at... Uh, uh, portage place, and we thought, you know, there's never Southlanders on, Southlanders on this side of town, and so then we can abuse the staff and stuff, right? So, um, no, just kidding. And, uh, and so I'm going to get the tie, and he says, are you Pastor Chris? I was like, oh, have I been good the last 10 minutes? <laughs> right? But you guys know me, right? I'm buying stuff from your stores, and 
and, and driving around town and doing stuff with the kids at the parks and meeting you guys, but we know each other and we do life together. It's meant to be done locally. This doesn't mean that we can't read books or go to conferences, but so many Christians today, it's like their heart is in a different place. It's like their heart is in a different place. They've latched onto someone who's a thousand miles away. They li- they're listening, listening, listening to all their messages. Heart is over there. And the thing is, you know what? If God's calling you to lead a leader, to follow a leader that's way out there somewhere, maybe you should move there and follow them. Because you can't know. There's a lot of Samsons out there, and the Spirit of the Lord can put an anointing on someone, and they can operate in a giftedness. But unless you know them and you're operating in that local body of Christ, you don't know if they're really godly and where they're going. We need the local church. Anyway, let's keep going, because I'm trying to fill in that blank up there. An unconsecrated life eventually becomes a what kind of life? Let me just get a drink of water here. Let's read a bunch of chapter 15 here. I'm reading more verses in one message here than the rest of the series altogether times 10. All right. (laughs) Verse 1 of chapter 15, we keep going. Later on during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a present to his wife. He said, I'm going into my wife's room to sleep with her. But her father wouldn't let him in. And again, just great stories. I truly thought you must hate her, her father explained, so I gave her in marriage to your best man. But look, her younger sister is even more beautiful than she is. Marry her instead. Samson said, this time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. Then he went out and caught 300 foxes. He tied their tails together in pairs and he fastened a torch to each pair of tails. Then he lit the torches and let the foxes run through the grain fields of the Philistines. He burned all their grain to the ground, including the sheaves and the uncut grain. He also destroyed their vineyards and olive groves. Who did this? The Philistines demanded. Samson was the reply, because his father-in-law from Timnah gave Samson's wife to be married to his best man. So the Philistines went and got the woman and her father and burned them to death. Okay? Terrible story. Verse 7. Samson, because you did this, Samson vowed, I won't rest until I take my revenge on you. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury and killed many of them. Then he went to live in a cave in the rock of Edom. Okay, so again, I just wanted to highlight this part of chapter 15. The back and forth. The pettiness involved in this is just absolutely unbelievable. I do this. First of all, I'm I'm at a drinking party, which I shouldn't be at. I make up a riddle. We gamble on it. You guys, you know, get with my wife, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm mad at you. I kill a bunch of guys. I bring this thing back. Now you guys do this to me. I do this to you. I do foxes. We do. And it's just back and forth. It's petty. It's petty vendettas. It's petty anger. The whole thing. Samson's got this huge calling from God from birth. You're a Nazarite. You're going to begin to deliver your people Israel. Like he's got a calling. He's got something important to do in his life. He's spending all his time chasing women and petty vendettas. And one of the things I want to tell you is, if you lead an unconsecrated life long enough, it will eventually become a petty life. God had given Samson a real calling. Something meaningful to do with his life. He said, this is what I want you to do. You're going to help many people. Samson, remember, we looked earlier in this series, we looked at the judge, Deborah. Remember, we looked at her and how we looked at that one verse there in chapter 5. talks about how she improved the roads in Israel, how she raised up an army, how she got rid of crime. She, with her leadership, she did tremendous things in the nation of Israel. Samson could have spent his time leading. He could have brought the tribes of Israel together. He could have built up an army. He could have strategically started attacking the Philistines. He could have built up forts and got rid of crime. He could have done all that stuff. But instead, he chose. He said, I don't want to be consecrated. I don't want to be different. And so he takes his tremendous gifts and his anointing from the Lord, and he spends them just on himself. He just goes and lives an absolutely petty life filled with parties, filled with lust, 
filled with petty vendettas. He lives a petty life. Called to a great life, he says no to consecration. He says no to saying no to the world. And as a result, what he slides into is a meaningless, meaningless, small, petty life. But I wonder how many of us Christians are doing the same thing today. We've been called to something higher. We've been called to seek the very face of God, to know him. That is, that is our privilege, to know God. The, the, the veil in the temple has been ripped down. We now have access to the God of the universe. We have been called to go to him and to know him, to listen to his voice, to serve him, to hear him speak to us and carry out his missions and assignments for us here on the earth, to spread his love into our families, to lead our children, to lead our co-workers, to lead our neighbors. He's got, if we would just listen to him, he has so many creative things. He's got a grand calling for you and I. And he would love to use you in all the different places you are in your life. He would love to use you to advance his kingdom. There's a grand calling on each of us. Ephesians 2.10 affirms that, so does Jeremiah 29 and many other passages. He has a grand calling on your life. He has a grand calling on my life. But how many of us have been absolutely ambushed by the petty? We've been ambushed by the petty. It's not like there was ever a specific day somewhere where we said, no, I don't want to live for, for the grand calling that God has on my life. I'd rather live for the petty. But somewhere, this world is so full of distractions. This world is wired to distract us. And somewhere along the way, we get ambushed by the petty. Here's this grand calling to seek the face of God and to know him, to hear his voice, to carry out his mission on the earth. And, but we get distracted by social media and entertainment and sports and home improvement projects and exercise and there's all these things and they're all fine and good in and of themselves it's all fine you do a little bit of this do a little bit of that that's totally fine but we've got this grand calling in our lives and because we don't want to say yes to consecration where we actually say no to, to a bunch of stuff so we can pursue the one thing that really matters. We just say yes, 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 yes to all these things that are eternally meaningless and eventually they swamp us and we find ourselves just like Samson, living a petty life. Spending our time posting petty rants to social media, squabbling, bickering, gossiping, worrying about things of this world instead of carrying out what God has called us to carry out. Instead of seeking his face, to sit in his presence, to listen to his voice, to come to know him, we spend all of our time swamped by things that ultimately don't matter. And you know, someday, every single one of us here, every single one of us here is one day, it's coming, I don't know when, but every single one of us here is one day going to stand before Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one of us, every one of us here, will give an account to Jesus for how we lived our lives here on earth. And he's going to say, I gave you this much time, and I gave you these gifts, and I gave you these talents, and I gave you these opportunities. Give me an account of your life. And for some of us, he's going to add up the time the hours and hours and hours each day and week spent on social media and on a computer and in front of movies and TV, and it's going to add up to months and years of our lives. We have just this short little life to live. 
absolutely, utterly wasted on the petty. And he's going to look at it. And in that day, when we're in his presence, we'll look at it too, and we'll be horrified. What did I do? I didn't live a consecrated life. I didn't, I didn't say, I'm going to be a Nazarite. I'm going to devote myself. I'm going to say no to some of these perfectly good things so that I can devote myself to the one thing that really matters. And so Samson went from a high calling to a petty small life filled with petty pursuits and petty arguments and petty emotions. And it's where many Christians are living today, petty lives. You know, you read some of the stories of the great Christian men and women of the faith through the years. The John Wesley's, the Gladys Aylward's, the George Mueller's, the Amy Carmichael's. I was listening to a message on, on YouTube last week uh, by George Mueller. Obviously not by him. It was done by an actor. He's been done for, dead for a while. But, uh, but anyway, it's done by an actor, but it was one of his messages. And he starts the message off by saying, I've seen 50,000 answers to prayer in my life. And I thought, 50,000? Like he's Obviously making a big generalization, that's a big round number. And then he follows it up. The very next statement he says is, I know I've had 50,000 answers to prayer because I've written them each down, I've kept track. And I thought to myself, how many of us, we could never see 50,000 answers to prayer in our lives, first of all, because we don't have time to pray 10 real prayers in a year. When would I get the time to pray 50,000 prayers? That's exactly it, isn't it? You can't point out any one thing that's wrong here in this life, but somehow, by saying yes to everything, we've actually crowded out the one thing that matters, which is to spend time in the presence of God. Not only that, many of us don't have the time or the desire to actually track our relationship with God, to actually write down what we've prayed, to follow them through, and to see Him answer our prayers and to thank Him. We just let our spiritual lives happen to us. We're just so busy with stuff, 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 stuff. Kind of throw up a prayer here, throw up a prayer there, and just kind of hope that something good happens in our lives. That is the opposite of consecration. Consecration will not just happen to you. You must be intentional. I'll say it again. A consecrated life will not just happen to you. An, un an unconsecrated life will just happen to you. If you just want to let life happen to you, you can let an unconsecrated life happen just happen to you. You can let a petty life will just happen to you. It's no problem. Because we are living in a culture, it's like we are drowning in a sea, in an absolute sea of distractions. There is an absolute mighty river that is far above our heads that is pushing down the pipe of our lives all around us that is filled with distractions. And if you don't make a stand in that river, it will just sweep you along into the petty. And so wanting a consecrated life isn't enough. It's not like you've got to get up, you listen to last week's message, you go, Chris is right, I want a consecrated life. I don't want to end up like Samson. I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. I want to have the power of the Spirit of God in my life. And if you think you're just going to go out from there and live a consecrated life, it won't happen. That sea of distraction will just sweep you off your feet. At some point, we have to sit down and we have to pound a stake into the ground and we have to say, this is what I'm saying no to and this is what I'm saying yes to and we actually have to get intentional. And by getting intentional, we put a stake in the ground that we can finally grab onto and we can't be swept down as easily. It's hugely, hugely important. Now, of course, I know even as I preach this, some of you are feeling really guilty. You feel hopeless, like you could 
never give enough. You could never be wholehearted enough. And that's okay. God's not mad at you. His grace is infinite and amazing. He's tender and loving. I know how some of you feel. You sit there and you go, I could never be wholehearted. Like, I may as well just give up. I could never live a consecrated life. You totally identify with the sea of distractions just going down. You're like, I'm flopping in there, and I know I can't last more than a day or two consecrated. It's okay. God knows. God's grace is amazing. And he doesn't expect you to become consecrated by tomorrow. God's not saying, you better get consecrated in the next 24 hours or I'm finished with you. But he is asking you to take one step. He asked us, you know, when the Israelites were crossing the Jordan River when it was flooded, he didn't part the Jordan River first. Like, I'm not talking about the Red Sea here. He actually parted, he parted water twice for the Israelites, right? When they went into the Promised Land with Joshua, he didn't part the sea first, and then they walked in. He said, you got to walk in first. And they had to take a step into the water, and then it would recede. And then they would take a step into the water, and it would recede. God doesn't expect you to make a consecrated life overnight, but he expects you to take a step this week. And as you take a step, his grace begins to come into you. He begins to pull you in, and he will help you along the way if you will take steps. But again, many of us feel helpless. I could never follow through. I could never be wholehearted. I could never actually consecrate myself to God. And, and, and you're right, we need the grace of God big time. And so I want to show you now the grace of God in Samson's life. I want to show you the grace of God now in Samson's life. Because Samson actually finishes his life consecrated. And I want to show you that. But first you need to realize that Samson lived a debauched life for 20 years. He didn't just live this lifestyle for a month or two. He was really stuck. It says at the end of chapter 15, it says this, that Samson judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. That's 20 years. I just have to emphasize that because some of you think you're too far gone. You think, I've been stuck in this life I've been in for too long. There's no way to get out. There's no way to change. Samson was in it a long time. 20 years, he lived a hopelessly petty, debauched life. He was absolutely caught in that lifestyle. There was no way he could get out. So how did God in his grace move Samson? Well, let's look at the grace of God. Chapter 16, verse 19. And we read the story of Delilah already, so I'm just going to catch the end of it. And then we'll see where this goes, all right? So obviously, you know, Delilah also nags him, gets the secret out of him. And now she's about to cut his hair. Famous story, she made him sleep on her knees, verse 19. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And you say, I thought you were going to show us the grace of God. That doesn't look like the grace of God. This actually is the grace of God at work. I'm going to show you in just a moment. It's a scary thing to be sure, but we'll see the grace. Verse 21, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. And you're going, okay, this is just getting worse. You said you were going to show us the grace of God in Samson's life. Now we see the Spirit of the Lord leaving him. His eyes get gouged out. Like, just think about that. That's bad. He's shackled. He's working at the mill. This is awful, right? But next verse, verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, why would the author of the story highlight that? Okay? This isn't just about Samson's hair. The hair is symbolic of something that's going on the inside. The reason he's highlighting this is Samson's consecration is back. And the reason this is the grace of God is because God could have given up on Samson. Isn't that true? After 20 years of debauched living, he could have just given him a heart attack in the middle of the night and said, you're coming home for judgment. 
He could have said, you know, 20 years of this is enough, Samson. I gave you a calling. I've given you many opportunities of kindness to repent on your own, but you haven't repented. So I'm, you're, I'm taking you in the middle of the night now, and we're going to deal with this, and we're going to have judgment for eternity. But you know what? In God's grace, God is too good for that. He cares about Samson, and he also cares about the Israelites, and Samson still has work to do. And so rather than taking him home to face judgment, God says, I'm going to do something else. And it's going to look nasty on the outside, but I'm going to strip Samson of everything and bring him to the end of himself so that he'll turn back to me. And so he has to gouge out his eyes because Samson is in complete bondage to everything he sees. He sees a, a woman he thinks is beautiful. He's going to lust after her and chase her. He sees something he wants. He's going to covet it. He's going to take it. He's in complete bondage to his eyes. God says, your eyes are going to drag you straight to hell. Jesus actually talked about this in Matthew chapter 5, didn't he? He said, it's better in verses 27 to 30, it is better for you to lose your eye than for, than for you to go into hell seeing. And I wonder if he was thinking of the Samson story. In his grace and mercy, he sees Samson is in bondage to his eyes, and those eyes are going to lead him to hell, and so I'm going to take his eyes. It looks bad, but this is actually God's grace and mercy at work. And God says, Samson has had 20 years of freedom to do whatever he wanted, and that freedom has not been used to pursue God. It has been used to pursue pettiness and filth and all kinds of garbage and self-centeredness. I'm going to have to shackle him and take his freedom because his freedom is going to also lead him to hell. So he takes his freedom, he takes his eyes, he shackles him up, and he takes him to the end of himself. And the moment Samson was stripped of everything, he had nothing left. All he had was God. So the writer says his hair began to grow back. What's really going on is going on in Samson's heart. Once everything was stripped away from him, Samson goes, oh yeah. And he turns back to God. That's the grace of God at work. And you know, I really believe that this Samson story here is a prophetic picture for us in the last days as a church here in the West. I don't think this is just a Samson story. I don't think this is just a story for individuals. I think this is a prophetic picture for the church here in the West in the last days. Because we've lost our consecration. We've come to rely on our own strength, our finances, our wealth, our human wisdom and planning. We've become prayerless and debauched. We've become slave to our, uh, slaves to our eyes, spending hour upon hour upon hour on petty things on the internet, on the computer, on social media. We've got more freedom here in the Western church right now, although it's beginning to slip away, than the, than the church tradi traditionally has had throughout most of the world, throughout most of church history. But we have not used that. We've had more freedom. We've got more freedom than the vast majority of Christians who have ever lived. But we have not used that freedom. You would think more freedom means we've spent more time seeking God. Instead, we've used our freedom to pursue materialism and worldliness and self-centered things. And so the, the story of Samson is a prophetic warning for us. God in his grace could just say, you know what, I'm... I'm done with the Western church. I'm just sick of the prayerlessness. I'm sick of the debauched living. I'm sick of the sinfulness. I'm sick of the, you know, just the, the uselessness and the self-centeredness and the human planning and the human wisdom and the human strength. But you know what? He's far too good and wonderful for that. He's far too, he's far too good to just chuck us out that, like that. And so at some point, he's going to have to take us to the end of ourselves just like Samson. And if we don't turn around, God will strip us of everything in order to get our strength. He will take away our, in order to get our attention. He will take away our strength so we can no longer rely on our human wisdom. 
He'll shackle us and take away our freedoms in order to force us to fall on our knees and press into him in prayer. He'll gouge out our eyes, figuratively speaking, so we can no longer chase after the world's methods, the world's ideals, and the world's toys. But the good news is he will not give up on us. Jesus is determined to come back to a pure and spotless bride, and he will accomplish that fact. And the Bible talks about all of this in many places. But we all know that Jesus is going to come back to judge the nations, right? We know that Jesus is going to come back and judge the nations. But one thing that many Christians don't realize is that before he judges the nations, he first starts with the church. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter says that before God judges all the nations, and we know it's coming. Look at all the wickedness out there. God is going to judge the nations. He is going to make everything right. And sometimes I think as Christians, we're pumped about that. Come and make everything right. But what we don't realize is that judgment must begin with the house of God. He says he will purify us first. Because he needs to strip us. He needs to strip us, bring us to the end of ourselves, so that we finally go, oh yeah, we've been swamped by all this. You're actually the one thing we need. And in his grace, he wants to bring us to that place. Of course, the good news in this as well is that when Samson was at his weakest, after God had stripped him, it was then that he became stronger than he had ever been before. Let's read the rest of the story now. Verse 25, And when their hearts were merry, speaking of the Philistine leaders, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson into prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And I just, I, the first thing we've got to notice here is Samson prays. Do you know if you go through the rest of the Samson story, five chapters long, I believe it is, so you're going to go off the top of my head here, four or five chapters long. He only prays one other time, and that's when he's deathly thirsty. In all of his other feats of strength, he never prays for strength. When he rips apart the lion, when he kills a thousand with the jawbone, when he picks up the gates of the city, uh, in all of his feats of strength, he never prays. He just takes for granted that the Spirit of the Lord will empower him. He just, he just takes it for granted, and whatever he wants to do, he just does. But I want you to notice here that after God has brought him to the end of himself and has stripped him down till he has absolutely nothing, we see now that he is relying on God. And so for the first time, he prays for strength. Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He finally realizes that all of his power comes from God. Verse 25 and, or 29, And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. By the way, I have to stop there for just a moment. Some people have asked me, Isn't that suicide? Um... And this is not suicide, okay? This is Samson now carrying out his mission. He was supposed to help deliver the Israelites. Okay, he was supposed to kill Philistines. That's what he was supposed to do. And now he has a chance to finally do, do the damage and he knows there's no way out. This is like a military uh, commander or soldier who has to do something heroic. He knows he's got to go and he knows he has to complete this mission to take out the enemy and he knows he won't be able to come home. And so he's been tortured he knows there's no way out. He's, he's glad to die for what he's living in, I'm sure. 
but this isn't suicide. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's. Uh, uh, you know, the rest of Samson's life when he was killing Philistines, it was like barroom brawls. It wasn't focused, it wasn't intentional, it wasn't strategic. He didn't raise up an army, he didn't take them on in the field of battle. It was just him being selfish. And so, you know what? He made almost no impact on the Philistines. The Israelites were oppressed by the Philistines, Samson's entire life. And here he is, he finally comes to the end of himself, and now he's actually going to take out the leadership. God's got him positioned to do something big. And upon all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those were more than those whom he had killed during his life. In one moment of consecration to the Lord, in one moment of this isn't about me, this is about you, he kills more Philistines than he did in the rest of his 20 years combined. Plus, he kills the leadership. After this, the Philistines were actually dealt a pretty major blow. It was a few years, the, the, the Israelites actually got a few years of reprieve after this act until the Philistines were again strong enough to oppress them. And so here we have Samson, 20 years, he's got his freedom, he's got his eyesight, he's got his health, he's strong, he's got the anointing, and in 20 years he accomplishes almost nothing. But in one moment, when he's brought to the end of himself, I can do nothing. He's blind, he's shackled, he's weak. And in one moment, he strikes such a blow against the Philistines that they feel it for years. And the people of God are granted a reprieve from their suffering. See, this is the paradox of the kingdom of God. When we are weak, that's when we're strong. That's the paradox of the kingdom of God. You can be the most amazing gifted speaker. You can be the most amazing musician. You can be a wealthy business person. You can be this anointed prophetic person, whatever it is. And you think, you know, I'm spending money on all these initiatives. I'm doing great things. Look at all the people. And you're speaking at all these conferences and events and you're prophesying and you're singing music. You're doing all this stuff and you think, I'm doing great things for the kingdom of God. But you know, as long as you think you're doing great things for the kingdom of God because of your giftedness and you're just moving and you might have the best of intentions and just like Samson for 20 years, he had all of that and he accomplished almost diddly squat. You might make a lot of noise for the kingdom of God, but you won't actually move things for the kingdom of God. And it's exactly, but it's exactly when we're in that place when we think we can't do it and we don't feel worthy and we think that God should call someone else and we just realize, actually, Jesus, I'm nothing and all my efforts and all my money and all my gifting are actually nothing. And in that moment when we call out to him, it's that when things, when mountains move for the kingdom of God. When we are weak, that's when we're strong. The kingdom of God is not given to the talented, the powerful, the wealthy, or the gifted. That's how the kingdoms of this world work. Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, the meek will inherit the earth. Not the gifted, not the anointed, the powerfully gifted and anointed. Those are the ones. They're going to have huge ministries, and they're going to impact lots of people, and they're going to travel all over the world, and they're going to be able to show you numbers of what's happening in their ministry, the money that's flowing in, and, and the lives, and the da 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 And Jesus says, no, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Success in the kingdom of God is not measured the way success is measured in the kingdom of heaven. And that's why in God's grace, if we're ever going to go really deep in him, if we're ever going to inherit the kingdom of God and make advances here on earth, he's got to take us to the end of ourselves. And the same is true not just of us as individuals. I believe it's true of the church. The Bible speaks of a great tribulation that is coming, 
a tremendous time of tribulation that is coming when the church will be trampled on and crushed and persecuted and killed and all of those things. And you know, it is exactly then. We're going to be hated by all nations, it says. And many of our brothers and sisters around the world are in the crucible right now. The fire has already been lit. But you know, it's exactly when we're in that place, when we're stripped of everything self-reliance, that the church, that we the saints are going to shine our brightest. Revelation chapter 7 says this, verses 9 through 14. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's exactly when the church is in its greatest tribulation that we're going to put on shining white pure robes. We're going to consecrate ourselves from all the yes, 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 busy stuff, and we're going to come, become pure, devoted to Jesus, and it's in that time when we're going to complete the Great Commission, and we're going to win more people to Christ and see God do greater things than he's ever done before in church history. All because we have to come to a place where we come to the end of ourselves. So the question I have today is, are we going to wait for God to strip us, blind us, and shackle us before we turn to him wholeheartedly, or will we turn to him today? Will we take a step towards him today? Why would we wait for that? We can take a step. We can make the most feeble, weak attempts today. We can take a step and say, Lord, I'm making a weak, not because I'm trying to earn anything with you, Lord, not because I'm trying to impress you because we can't impress him. This isn't about earning anything with him. But I am going to say no to some of this stuff. I am going to make an intentional plan and I'm going to devote myself. I'm going to become a Nazarite and I'm going to begin to follow after you, Jesus. Because I don't want to have to be brought to blind, shackled, and grinding at the mill before I'll let the hair grow back. So here's my challenge to you. This week, speak to the Lord about a plan of consecration. Without intentionality, all we have is just feelings and hype. Without a plan, all we've got is a sermon that, and then we go, okay, that was neat, consecration, Samson, wow. Without a plan, it doesn't, the rubber doesn't meet the road. And so I would challenge you to, in the Lord's presence, pull out a piece of paper and on one side of the paper write, things I'm going to limit, and then just talk to Jesus about that. Just talk to him about it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. There's lots of perfectly good things in there. I'm not telling you to cut them absolutely out. I'm just saying, talk to Jesus about maybe they need to be limited. Maybe you don't want to stand before him and say, and have him look at you and say, when I add up the hours, you spend five years of your life on Facebook. And you go, So talk to him about that and limit and write it down. Be specific. Without a plan, you will be swept down the river of distractions almost immediately. Talk to your spouse about it. Talk to some people at Cell about it. Pro home projects, sports, TV, exercise. Just talk to them about it. Say the things I'm going to limit. And then in the other column, write, make Jesus the number one pursuit and love of my life. Oh, I just so challenge you to do this. Just to write that down. We all know the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I challenge you this week to write that down on a piece of paper and say, make Jesus, the number one pursuit and love of my life. And then write down and say, Lord, I, I want to take a step. 
I can't get there overnight, but can you help me? What are some things I can do? What are some things, changes I can make to make you number one in my life? Consecrated life. So the Spirit of God can begin to move in your life, so that you can begin to separate yourself from that petty life, that you can begin to live out the calling that he has for you. So that in his kindness, maybe he doesn't have to strip you all the way down in order to get your attention. Let me pray for you, and then let's sing a song of worship, but I think the follow-through, what we've got to have is follow-through. We can, we can end up being Samson-like by accident, but we can't end up being wholehearted for Jesus by accident. Lord Jesus, I just lift up to you this matter of consecration. We thank you for your grace. We confess that so much of our lives is lived in utter pettiness. And we, got there, we get there all by accident. We don't wake up one morning and say we want to live a small, petty life that's wasted on small, petty things. But somehow we get there anyway. Would you help us, Father? First of all, thank you for your grace that we don't have to do this overnight. Thank you for your love and mercy. We don't have to earn anything with you. You've already paid it all at the cross. But Jesus, would you help us this week as a church to get intentional about consecration? And Lord Jesus, I pray that as a, as a church body, Father, in what's coming, your word prophetically says that the day is coming when you will strip the church down in order to make her truly glorious. Would you prepare us for that day? Would, would we be able to be consecrated before that day already? Would you give us a wholehearted heart here at Southland to fall on our knees, to pray with passion, to see you work here in Canada through church renewal? That would be amazing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.